Check. Check, check, check. One, two, three. <laughs> and I'm good when you're good, dude. All right. Thanks for listening to Worship Local. This is our non-podcast where we invite you into the long-winded, ever-deepening, sometimes winding conversation of Frontier Church, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. Today's episode is about the literary context of 1 John, which we began preaching through last Sunday. Who wrote 1 John? What was going on through his mind? What drove his writing? So whether you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, we hope this podcast helps you worship local. Hey, I'm Cole. I'm a pastor at Frontier, and I'm hanging out with... I'm Andrew. I'm also a pastor at Frontier. And most notable, we are not hanging out with... Nick Powell. Nick Towell. Nick Fowl. We got rid of some fat. <laughs> That's right. Down in numbers, up in quality. That's right. That's right. Quality of content, quality of character, just all, just all the qualities. <laughs> we love you, Nick. We love you. We do. We told you we were going to do this, though, when you left. Yeah, totally. Remember, totally. you left us. We didn't leave you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. As Jesus would say, he departed from us because he was never among us. I mean, you can make... you can come up with your own answer to what Jesus is saying there, but I think it's pretty clear in the text. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what do we even have to say about Nick right now? Uh, a lot of things that I probably shouldn't say right now. Okay, so if you weren't there on Sunday, we we updated you all with, with kind of where Nick is at. So Nick and, Nick and Holly are our church planters who we've resourced, equipped, trained, and sent out. Nick cut his arm very, 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 very badly last Monday while he was fixing his house. He was patching up some holes in his wall, and he put some put a wrong amount of pressure in on a window, broke the window, sliced his arm wide open, um, ended up getting flown to Iowa City for some emergency surgery. Long story short, the surgery has gone well. They think that Nick is going to regain 100% of his mobility and use of that right arm. He's got a long road in front of him, three to five years of physical therapy. But here's the deal. Lots of prayer for that dude. Lots of prayer for their family. He's he's on the, the road back. He's on the road in the right direction. We're 110% confident in his ability to plant a church and his calling to plant a church. And he's in good spirits right now. He's feeling, I was talking on the phone, he was laughing, he was joking. Um, so he's, he's in good spirits now. So we can rag on him a little bit. I think enough, it's been, it's been like 10 days. I think enough time has passed for us to make some jokes. Yeah. You know, we've been telling him for, from day one of church planting that he needs to get himself a right-hand man. So, <laughs> I mean, it's even more true now. That's right, yeah. dude. That's right. Oh, missed that guy already. I do too. I do too. Keep praying for the pals, guys. All right, let's let's transition into uh, why we're actually doing this podcast, which is on Sunday we started our new sermon series on First John. I I didn't have time to do any literary context in the sermon, which I usually love doing. Yeah, you nerd out over that. I know, I know. It's just so fun for me as like a dude who was an English teacher before, like to see how the literary context drives the actual text, I think frames the theology with the actual story behind it. So I usually get really excited about it. Yeah. No, that's what I think whenever we launch a new uh, sermon series, our church really loves those intro sermons because they appreciate the work that you put into um, studying the literary context, uh, um, making the the author of that of that uh, book come alive to them to where they they have more handles to hold on to the text. Yeah. I think that's a helpful way to to think about it is it's not just some random 
uh, passage of scripture that we've been given, but a real God used a real human being by the power of his spirit to to write to the church, to record things, to encourage the church. And if you just think it's just some cold, callous textbook, it's not going to come alive to you. It's just going to be something right. to learn. Um, but that's not the point of the scriptures. It's not just the input of knowledge, but it's the stirring up the affections and the, mm. and the imagination. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And like Christianity is, and, and it's always been, it's always been a current events religion. And so like you said, like these dudes aren't like John in First John. He's not sitting in a vacuum in an ivory tower, ivory tower, like writing his systematic theology and just totally unaware of what's happening in the world outside of him. This is a, this is a current event thing. Like John is coaching early Christians about how to live their life in light of the gospel of Jesus, given some of these heresies and these lies that are starting to sprout up and take root all around them. Mm-hmm. So Christians have always been like, from the scriptures to the year 2020, they've always been interested in this crap is happening right now. How do we interpret what's happening in the light of the gospel? Mm-hmm. Right? Christians are doing that right now. Given what we see with racial injustice, how does the gospel speak into that? Given COVID-19, how does the gospel speak into that? Or in 1 John, given some of these early church heresies, how does the gospel speak into that? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is also a, a timely uh, portion of scripture for us to go through. You know, we did a Holy Spirit sermon series. We had Nick's mm-hmm. um, micro sermon series, and then now we've you know relaunched and regathered. Um, so I think it is very timely for us to be going through this book because there's a lot of a lot of people misappropriating scriptures to accomplish their own particular movement goals or their own personal goals of affecting yeah. change in society. And so some of the content that we're going to walk through in First John is going to be really, really helpful. And my prayer is spiritually formative for, for our church family so that we, we know what God desires of us when it comes to seeing injustice, when it comes to seeing um, a virus ravage the world. Um, I think it's good, the, the Lord has been kind to us and yeah. leading us where, where our church, what our church is going to be learning and, and moving toward. Yeah, and I gotta be honest, dude. Like the reason why I wanted to roll through First John, um, it actually has less to do with the actual text of First John. Even though obviously I love it and I'm excited to exegete the text and to show the meaning and everything like that. Um, but the, what was like primarily motivating me to do First John right now is I want our church to hang out with John. Mm-hmm. Like, I think John is the exact dude who we need to hear from right now. John is the type of pastor. He's the type of leader. He's the type of Christian that 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 Christians need to spend time with, especially those who are going through a really, really, really divisive time. Because mm-hmm. John was like, he's the apostle of love, man. I think like tons of times, like to, I, I can't remember what it is, but like 10 to 15 times in the short Maybe it's like 20 times in First John he references love mm-hmm. and compels us to love. There's even this old, um, there's this old apocryphal story. So you can't prove this with the text. This story is not in the Bible. But about the guy who wrote First John, about the Apostle John, there's this old story that as John became older and older and older and progressed and advanced in his old age, he eventually got so old that early church leaders, to get him to come preach at their church, would would walk over to his house on Sunday mornings and pick John up and like literally carry him into church. And then when it was time for the sermon, legend has it that they would go over, they would pick John up and they would carry him up to the pulpit. And apparently John was so old in age, 
And and he was so weak as an elderly man and lacked so much energy that he would often only preach one sentence sermons. And he would get up in front of the church and say, little children, love one another. And then go sit down. And apparently like that was formative for the early church. And like that was like a, whoa, John just blew our mind. But when I think about the potential of this coming season for division and hatred and everything like that, I think, man, I want our church to hang out with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a helpful way of, you know, you see a lot of the familial language in, in the pastoral letters, whether it's Paul or Peter um, or, or John, um, they, they are spiritual fathers to to these churches that that they're they've you know they've made these disciples they're maturing these disciples and they they nurture these new disciples these new followers of Jesus and so there's this great love and affection that comes off in their in their writings to the church mm-hmm. they're not some conference speaker who doesn't care about uh, the individuals who are there other than the individuals learning something new or doing something new but this is a spiritual father who looks at these new Christians and loves them with the love of a of a father. Um, so I think that's we, we lose that a lot. I think in in preaching and in studying the scriptures, we just viewed it's it's like some professor disseminating knowledge to some students, but it's yeah. more of a father coming to his sons and daughters and communicating with them and loving them and helping them. Yeah. See, this is this is this is what I want to talk about in this podcast. Is like. Who's this author and who's John and what is he like and what are some of the transformative experiences he had that result in the text that we have? I mean, we can hammer out some of the more mechanical literary features. Like this was written probably A.D. 80, maybe 85 A.D. That's important. It was written primarily to house churches in in, uh, Asia Minor. So these were little churches kind of around the Ephesus area. Um, that were probably 10 people to 30 people big, probably primarily Jewish, but definitely some Greek people in there, maybe some slave owners, maybe some slaves. Those facts are important, but let's keep chipping away at like, who's John and what is he like and what stands out to you in the life of John? Yeah, so we, you know, there, there are people who would debate on, is this actually John the disciple who, who wrote this? Um, but we see there's it, always those people. Yeah, there's always these people who are just looking for something to, to nitpick. Um, but anyway, as church tradition formed and the church fathers, you know, believing that this was John the disciple who, who wrote this. But in his first, you know, the prologue to to John, to, to First John, um, this is someone who knew Jesus, who walked with him, who heard mm-hmm. his voice audibly, who touched him, who ate with him, who cried with him, who saw Jesus raise people to life. And so if this is if this guy saw all these things, did all these things, heard all of these things, then he was a very very close and intimate with Jesus. This is the dude who you want to learn about Jesus yes. from. If he saw that the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus then then I'm going to factor that into um, what I learned from him and what I'm compelled to from him and his writings. Right, right. I've never been to Texas. You you lived there, bro. You heard it. You saw it. You touched it. If I want to know about Texas, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask Chloe about it. You know, like we haven't lived there. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to you. You heard it, you saw it, you touched it. Yeah, and that's that's just and it's so weird why we approach the scripture like this sometimes. Because what you just said, that illustration is perfect because that's how we factor things into our decisions. Like Tracy and I got away for a couple of days to celebrate our anniversary and I um, we looked at a bunch of restaurants to eat at. 
I read through the menus and looked at you know what they said about their food, what they said about their restaurants, but I wanted to know people who had actually eaten there. What did what is somebody saying on Yelp? Or is this somebody who's just being real cranky and you know didn't get all their preferences met at this restaurant? Uh, or is it someone who actually ate the food and the food was actually really good and they described the intricate details of the food and the atmosphere and how good the wait staff was, how yeah, good the yeah. chef was? We approach life like that. But sometimes we approach the, the scriptures and the author of the scriptures um, as, yeah, as someone who's just like, hey, here's some facts about Jesus. Here's some uh, ways that the Old Testament speaks into these current events and issues. Um, and we, we lose sight of the, the, the human side of scriptures, right? God, by, by his spirit, inspired these writings and the church has collected them. The church has persevered them and carried them out uh, year after year, decade after decade. And we... We, we lose sight of the fact that God used John with all of his knowledge, all of his experiences, all of his redeemed humanity to, to write to the church. And so um, it's not some random dude writing these things, but it's John who is acquainted with Jesus. And I want our church to know that. One of the reasons why I want our church to know that is because a lot of times when Christianity is mocked and ridiculed by people in the postmodern world, they say like ridiculous things like, Oh, you just love talking to your imaginary best friend who's up in the sky. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, you do not understand Christianity. Christianity took place within history in a time and a place where there are eyewitnesses. Like mm-hmm. Christianity is not based off our desire to have a father figure up in the heavens. It's mm-hmm. not based off us wanting to have an imaginary best friend to talk through when life gets tough. We literally read and study the handwritten letters of people who knew Jesus and walked with Jesus and touched Jesus. Yes. They're eyewitnesses. Yeah. You know, and that's um, thinking about one, one helpful way of like thinking about the scriptures um, and the inspiration of the scriptures. Uh, a theologian named Michael Heiser talks about how in our minds sometimes we get, it's like an X-Files episode where inspiration occurs with, God just like mysteriously and behind the scenes putting something in someone's mind and they're just mindlessly, you know, with their eyes closed, writing these letters. Yeah. The Holy Spirit was meeting the, met John and inspired him to use his personality, his tone of voice, Mm -hmm. his experiences to communicate to the church. And that's just, that's so important to, to think about. But, and the beauty of the scriptures, man, like we don't know every little detail of why John was writing. We've got a pretty good idea. He's pretty explicit. This is one of those epistles where, like, he's, this is why I'm writing you. And this is why I'm writing to you. And this is why I'm writing to you. <laughs> yeah, he and this is why. Times, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's some other things like the Bible Project's doing a really cool series right now on the, the New Testament letters and talking about, this is a letter from an apostle to a church. Ooh, let's and, link that for our church. Yeah, and there's like some, you know, we don't know all of the details of the occasion on this being written, um, but it's like if I were to write, one of the illustrations they use is, I write you a letter um, about, hey, Cole, thanks for setting up these microphones and setting up, you know, this and this. I'm so glad to, you know, see that Russell was sitting in Chloe's lap eating whenever I came in your front door. Um, did you check out that new book on demons? Right. So mm. I wrote that to you. You're going to know what I'm talking about. But if yeah, someone yeah. else were to, if, were to get a hold of that letter and they don't know you, they don't know me personally, they can say, oh, they must have been recording something if there was, uh, you know, microphones and a computer. Uh, maybe Cole's wife's name is Chloe. Maybe it was uh, a sister. I don't know. But it, pro- it sounds like it was probably his wife and he's got a, uh, a son. Yeah. Um, 
but what's that thing about that book on demons? What book are they talking about? I can Google it and try to find some book on books on demons, but there's a lot of Whoa. them. So what is he talking about? So that's an illustration yeah. they use that's really helpful. And if you don't do the literary context well, you can end up making some heinous errors. Yeah. Like if you if you looked at that letter that you wrote to me, you could conclude like, oh, Cole must not be a Christian because he's studying books on demons. So mm-hmm. he must be a demonologist. Yeah. Unless you do your homework. And you're like, well, actually... Turns out Cole was the lead pastor. And as we kind of dig through some of his sermons, as we kind of dig through some of those, we see him quoting a guy named Michael Heiser, who also was a Christian, but happened to write a book on a biblical theology of demons. Mm -hmm. So if you understand the literary context, you're like, oh, no, Cole Nadger just wanted to get a a more Christian theology of demons rather than concluding they must worship demons. So it's important for us to understand the time in which 1 John was written, who wrote first john why he wrote first john it's it's important to do that hard work of bible study yeah yes dude yeah um are there are there any important events in the life of john that you think shape the way that he writes like a couple of stylistic things you come that come through is this reads less like a general epistle Mm -hmm. you don't see john actually use his name there's not an introduction it reads more like a sermon that john wants to circulate through various different house churches Um, stylistically john is very black and white in his thinking he uses metaphors like light and darkness life and death very black and white categories that he wants us to evaluate ourselves in so there's tons of stylistic stuff that's cool about the letter but is there any life event from John's life that you think, man, that must really shape the way that he wrote this letter? Oh, man, there's several. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples, and they had this inner circle of, of disciples, and John was one of those disciples. Um, um, was was there at, you know, all the key moments, and you know, John in his gospel, make sure that people know that he was there in that particular scene, and, he you know, he'll rat out people who ran away or whatever. But... Um, yeah, when I'm thinking about the themes of eternal life, the themes of light, you know, I, this is one of those things where you don't exactly know, but this is where my imagination leads me to of of Jesus healing a blind man and him seeing this, this person who all they saw is oh. darkness and now they see light. You know, there's light has so much imagery in there, but that's one thing I'm thinking of is yeah, people, you know, someone physically, all their, they live in darkness. They don't see light. They don't see colors. They don't see shapes. They can feel them and they can bump around and figure stuff out. And if you were blind in the first century AD, um, being a blind person was really bad. You know, they maybe probably had some primitive walking sticks, but they didn't have crosswalks with, you know, the little bumpies before you get into the road. They didn't Mm -hmm. have Braille. They didn't have all this. So these people were living in physical darkness. Jesus brings sight to their eyes and now they're able to see light and experience the fullness of light. And so John in talking about light, he's, you know, the human condition from birth is darkness, spiritual darkness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we are brought into the light because of Christ and his atonement. Um, you know, Peter keys off of that as well in, uh, in his first letter. But, um, but yeah, that's one big moment for me. And then also to see from, uh, being the John who walked with Jesus for three years, saw Jesus get arrested, saw Jesus be tortured and abused, saw Jesus being hung on a cross, um, and then seeing that Jesus being placed in a tomb, and then seeing that Jesus come back again. Eternal life and life uh, for John to have seen someone go from life to death back to life, that's got to be a pretty significant and transformative event to see this Jesus back to life again. 
So when he's writing about eternal life to the to this, these churches, um, he is conveying the the width and depth of of eternal life and life in Christ uh, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, so that's a big one. You got a quote over there? Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. Um, so you said John, like the transformative experience of John witnessing Christ be crucified, thinking that he was dead, and then having him come back to life. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to let an author kind of, this is this is a great story that's really going to frame the excitement and the love and the passion that John would have experienced when Christ was resurrected. This comes from uh, Matthew Sleeth, who wrote Reforesting Faith. Um, this is this is great. Okay, um, he says one Saturday while one, okay wait wrong place to start. So at 25, he was just married. He was starting his undergraduate studies, and to help pay the bills, he was a security guard at the county hospital. This is the story he recounts at the co- the county hospital. He says one Saturday while wandering the corridors, I passed by a small elderly woman. She sat alone in the windowless waiting room, holding a damp handkerchief with her tiny veined hand. I passed the room several times, making my rounds, and she continued her sad vigil. Hours and hours passed, and she remained. Something was dreadfully wrong, but what? It's common to see grieving families in the hospital, but they don't sit in waiting rooms for days. When people die, their loved ones leave. I didn't feel like I was in the position to ask a doctor or a nurse for help, so I walked into the unit beside the waiting room and asked the secretary if she knew anything about the woman. And the secretary got up, She went over to the woman, investigated, and she had a short, whispered conversation with the elderly woman in the waiting room. Moments later, the secretary hurried out and went to the recovery unit where she approached the nurse caring for an elderly man. A brief exchange followed, and the secretary emerged with an ashen-faced nurse. The two went back through the electric doors and out to the waiting room. They returned, leading the elderly woman. So what are you thinking? Like, oh, that elderly woman, she's there still because her husband passed away. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's how the story goes. That morning, the woman's husband had surgery requiring general anesthesia. His wife had been assured that the surgeon would come afterward and talk to her. But the surgeon had been called away unexpectedly right after the process. So hour after hour, she waited alone. And the, the anxiety she'd had during her husband's surgery grew And in time, her worst fear that her husband was dead seemed to be confirmed. She grieved alone, too timid to ask anyone for information. The day passed, and then they came and got her. So she thought her husband was dead. What had happened is that the nurse had been called away on an emergency right after the process. So tears filled the old lady's eyes as she was led back to her husband, and then she spoke. What? Her husband said, lying on his back and unable to see his wife. He couldn't hear without his hearing aids. I thought you were dead, his wife said, with more volume this time. What? I love you, she cried, handkerchief pressed to her face. Oh, Dolly, he said. I love you. I thought I'd lost you, she shouted. Oh, Dolly, I love you too, he shouted back. And they declared their love for each other at the top of their lungs, oblivious to all who looked on, weeping the one she loved most had been given back to her he who thought he who was thought dead had been brought back to a life so imagine for a moment that the person you love most was declared dead that's john <laughs> yeah like that that tender moment of yeah. being reunited with the one who you thought was permanently dead mm-hmm. john had gone through that 
Oh, man. Yeah, especially you're following a, uh, a man who claims to be the Messiah, God's um, anointed one to rescue Israel and to restore the nations back under Yahweh's um, leadership. And you see him do all these miracles. You see him heal people and feed thousands of people and hang out with the, the scum of society. And then he's killed. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what the heck, man? You're talking about the kingdom of God. You're talking about eternal life. Um, you're talking about restoring and, and reclaiming the nations. And then you're dead. And then he comes back to life. And then when you think about eternal life and you think about life and you think about the light of God's kingdom, it it is there's flesh put on that theology. Yeah. Literal flesh. That's who you want to learn about eternal life uh-huh. from is the dude who saw Jesus get resurrected. Uh-huh. Like, that's a big question in the New Testament. Um, it seems like almost, well, at least in a lot of encounters that people have with Jesus in the Gospels, the first question to, to, to exit their lips is, how do I inherit eternal life? Mm-hmm. And so, like, around the time when the Gospels were written, that was a big question. Like, if you were a first century Jewish person and you were lucky enough to get time with a Jewish rabbi who were like the rock stars of the ancient world, the first question you probably would have had was, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I do it? How do I get the type of life that's harmonious and consistent with the eternal one? How do I obtain the best life, the richest life, the most joyful life? Everybody's talking about it. The person I want to learn about is the guy who touched it Uh and saw it come back to life. And the dude who saw Jesus get resurrected. That's who I want to learn from. Oh, absolutely, man. Like John in in his uh, gospel and then in his first epistle, you know, he keys off of creation in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning. So you think about, okay, in the beginning, God creates humanity. Who is it just, is it just Yahweh, God, the father doing that? I was like, no, Jesus is present with them. You know, the word and in John's gospel. And then now he's saying eternal life concerning the word of life. Um, and there was harmony with man and woman and God. Mm-hmm. How was their harmony? They were with God in his presence. Yeah. So they had life abundantly. They had the tree of life, which kept them alive. But sin brings death into the world, which death brings separation. God can't be in the, in the direct presence of, of sin. And I think this is another point. Like we, we can't be in the direct presence of God and being stained with death. That's why you look at Leviticus and a lot of the weird... Um, cleansings you had to go through for various situations and circumstances to be able to make a sacrifice. It's it's because they were tainted with death. So you couldn't have blood on you. You couldn't have bodily fluid on you because that was viewed as life leaving your body. Right. And so the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ cleanses and washes those who follow Jesus and they get eternal life. They're given the spirit that fills and that brings back God's direct presence inside mm-hmm. of us. Um, so I think that's something that's really cool is he's playing off this create creation narrative. Um, he's a you know Old Testament scholar like he grew up totally meditating on the scriptures, studying the scriptures, hearing the scriptures proclaimed, singing the scriptures. He's no he's no fool here, um, and so he knows that creation narrative, and he sees Jesus and knows that Jesus was with God the Father at the point of creation. And he knows that he is eternal life because he embodied eternal life. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's the first one off the assembly line that mm-hmm. all the others who follow him will be transformed into. Yes. Man, 
So you want to learn from John. And here's another story about John. Again, this is not in the biblical canon. It's not in the <laughs> biblical text. So you can't prove it from scripture. So this is more church church mythology, maybe, church history. But a couple early church fathers told this epic story about the Apostle John. And um, apparently, while, while, while Rome's tyranny was continuing to increase towards the end of John's life, and while John was becoming more and more of a nuisance to, to Rome, because John refused to proclaim that Caesar was Lord, but instead proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, legend has it that that, that, that pissed off Rome so much and this was Rome's way of doing things. Like when, when Rome wanted to execute somebody or punish somebody or torment somebody, they always wanted to make it as public as possible. That's what they did with Jesus, right? The crucifixion is not just about bodily and physical torment. It's about making that pain as public as possible to as many people as possible mm -hmm. so that as many people as possible would look at the cross and say, oh, that's what happens when you screw around with Rome. So they were really into taking people and, and torturing them as living billboards for this is what you'd better not do. So they tried to do that with John, apparently. So what they did is they filled a Roman Colosseum of people and they boiled John alive in boiling oil. Now again, this comes from early church fathers. You're not going to read about this in 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John or Revelation or the Gospel of John or anything like that. But according to church tradition... John emerged from the boiling water alive and the entire Roman Colosseum was converted to Christ. <laughs> I've heard that say. one before. You've yeah. heard it, right? Yeah. I think it's in the Fox's Book of Martyrs or something like that. It might be. I can't remember. That. But yeah, I've heard that story before. <laughs> Do you think it happened? I don't know. I want to believe it happened. Sweet, right? Yeah. Dude's a gangster. He can't even be boiled alive. I know, dude. Yeah. And so a legend has it that's when they kicked him off to the island because uh -huh. what do you do with a man you can't kill? And that's where he wrote Revelation. Yeah. Who knows? But what, I guess what I'm saying is I want to learn from this guy. It's not just John. There are some things that are taking root in the early church when First John was written that are important. For instance, there's this rumor going around and around and around about what Jesus was like, and it seems like John is addressing that. So it seems like, and most scholars think this is true, that John is refuting an old ancient heresy called Gnosticism. So you want to put some flesh on that? Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> What's Gnosticism? Oh, so there's there's a lot of... Yeah, Gnosticism was an interesting heresy because there were some other heretics who even rejected Gnosticism. So it's a real, it's a real strange one where like Origen, some people debate on whether or not he was a heretic or not, but Origen, which he got real creative with the scriptures and his uh, theological imagination, but even Origen was like, eh, Gnosticism, that's going a little too far for me. Um, yeah, yeah. But Gnosticism, probably one of the most prevalent, um, bits of information that people have when they think of Gnosticism. One of, one of the implications is, um, Jesus was a, was a human man. And then the spirit came God's spirit, a divine spirit came upon him. And that divine spirit was given up or left Jesus whenever he was crucified and killed. Right. It was given to him at baptism mm -hmm. and he shed that at his crucifixion. Yes. So that's one thing. Uh, Gnostics also believe that you couldn't, um, truly comprehend God. Uh, he was unknowable and he was transcendent. Um, one, te one Gnostic text says, God and Father of all, the holy invisible, existing as pure light into which 
it is not possible for any light of the eye to gaze. So God is unknowable. He's not been revealed to us actually. Right. Um, which I think you see that here in, in John's text where he's he saying, oh, you yeah. guys you want to talk about true light? Well, let me show you true light. Let me show you how to walk in the light. Um, so that's an interesting thing. What, so this is like the root word of Gnosticism is, is gnosis, right? Which uh-huh. is the Greek word for secret or hidden knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if, if God is unknowable, then only these kind of um, secret few people have this hidden information or this gnosis about Jesus that the rest of the world doesn't have. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was trying to look for one more thing um, that s- stands out to me when it comes to Gnosticism. Um, well, so so some people will debate on whether or not it came out of Judaism or if it came out of Christianity. They, oh, I heard it came out of Greek thinking. So there's, well, so, sorry, I should say whenever it became prominent in, oh, okay. In, okay. A, gotcha. in the early church age. Did, was it developed by Jews who were influenced by early Greek thinking, or was it developed by Christians who were influenced by early Greek thinking? Um, so that's just kind of an inter- interesting um, historical fact of trying to pinpoint where does this come from? Does it come from, were the, the people who are claiming, claiming to be Gnostics who were, historically Jewish or were Greek and then were converted to Christianity and then they, you know, depart from either faith tradition. Um, So it's just, that was something that stood to me that was uh, really interesting. The other interesting thing is how the Orthodox church fathers hated Gnosticism. Yeah. yeah, Devoted entire texts or entire um, chapters against Gnosticism. They realized um, the implications that would come from believing in Gnosticism, believing that God is truly incomprehensible, uh, believing that Jesus um, was just a man and that the Spirit came upon for three years and then it went away. Like those have really deep implications when it comes to your belief of the atonement and the work of Christ. Yeah, big time. Let's get to those a little bit later. Yeah, because there's it seems it seems like a harmless misunderstanding about Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Like it seems like it, there's some truth to it, right? Like and um, there's some truth to it. Like there, there is this sense in which we could never fully comprehend and fully know the depths of who God is. And yet there's also some truth to the fact that, um, yeah, I'm going to save that one for later. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it seems to me like the main built, so there's, you went through a couple different variations of Gnosticism. It seems to me that the main building block that all these other Legos are stacked on top of, all these other variations of Gnosticism, the main block of Gnosticism is the Greek thought that there are two worlds, the spirit world and the physical world. Mm -hmm. And the spirit world is good and beautiful and holy, and the physical world is a world of materiality that is compromised and evil and wicked. So there's that Greek thought. And so if you look at that hard enough, and you convert to Christianity, and you hear that God took on flesh, you think, that can't be true. Mm-hmm. right? But materiality is bad. Physicality is bad. Molecules are tainted. There's no way that God could ever take on flesh, because that would mean that he would compromise his holiness. So to me, that's the, that's the main thing of Gnosticism. That's what kind of all of it is built on. Is that, is that your understanding, too? Yeah, they were like the... Um yeah, the the physical body was like a prison cell for the the what do they say the, the the divine spark. It's this the the soul the spirit is is trapped inside human flesh. Right. And so, how do we get out of that? How does the divine spark continue? How does it go? So yeah, if you if that's yeah, if, yeah. if that's your world worldview, then yeah, you can't believe that Jesus 
was fully God and fully man. You can't believe that. Right. You have to believe that only for a period of time because he could only tolerate it so long um, that it left upon the crucifixion. Um, so, again, we're, we'll talk about that later, but that has implications on, yeah. on salvation and atonement. But uh, it's totally antithetical to the Old Testament and Jewish thinking. Mm-hmm. God literally creates atoms and molecules and matter and says, that's really good. Uh-huh. Which is different than this Greek understanding of that's bad. Physicality is what's wrong with the world. Materiality is wicked and evil. And we would be lucky someday to shed our bodies and be done with them entirely. Uh-huh. And that is not the Christian worldview. Not the Christian worldview. Because if Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he's resurrected, then what does that tell us? If we follow him and believe him and we get eternal life, are we just disembodied spirits for, all, for eternity? Because right. only, only our soul, only our spirit is good. And so once we get rid of that, then we are just fully, fully uh, a disembodied spirit. So what's the point of, of creation in the first place? And what's the point of new creation? That's right. Are we just yeah. gonna God's gonna bring a new creation into existence, and we're just some spirits hovering around and wandering around? Right. Because I think a lot of Christians, I've been learning a lot about this of uh, what happens when you die. Right now, before Christ returns, we die. We become disembodied spirits, and we are present with Christ, but on the capital T capital. Uh, our resurrection when that occurs our body and soul are reunited that's right and we get glorified bodies just as christ received a glorified body because he is the first fruits of the resurrection so our hope as christians is that christ is coming back and we're gonna our body and soul will be realigned and they will be perfect and they will be good and they'll be glorified whatever that's gonna look like i don't i don't know but i know that my body and my soul are gonna be reunited again in new creation Right, right. What God does in the, in the new creation has to be a reaffirmation of the original creation. Exactly. It cannot, be, it cannot be God changing his mind. In Genesis, he looks upon the material world and says, it is good. Mm-hmm. And so our understanding of eternality as being this disembodied state of existence cannot be God saying, actually, I was wrong in Genesis. We're going to do this disembodied thing for an eternity. It has to be a reaffirmation of, I said it was good in Genesis. It fell from its original state of glory, and I've restored it. And guess what? It's very good now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the John's in Revelation. His um, vision of new creation is a garden city with a tree yep. of life in it that heals the nations. It's yep. a restoration of Eden, where where Eden is now the entire world. It's not just a garden that Adam and Eve were commanded to go out and to make the rest of the rest of earth. Uh, populated with imagers and uh, to make the rest of the earth and cultivate it to look like Eden. New creation is is humanity with flesh, with spirits that are one, but they, they're not just restricted to a, a plot of land that is that's God's home on earth. Now the whole new earth, the new creation is God's home. Everywhere that's is right. God's direct presence. Yeah. Huh. So John took this pretty seriously. Yeah. It, it took pretty seriously the, the God's intention and, and design of creating human beings with bodies, not just with spirits. What I find what I find interesting and kind of malicious about the heresy of Gnosticism is when it began to take root. If you look at a timeline of Gnosticism, it's nowhere in AD 40. Mm-hmm. In Christianity, it's nowhere in 8060. 
And it begins to take root about the time that 1 John was written. It begins to circulate around AD 90 or AD 85 or you know, whenever you think it is. That's really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So apparently, Gnosticism was unable to take root in the Christian church while most of the apostles were alive. It couldn't because the apostles would have been there to combat it and say, no, that's not true. I saw Jesus. I hung out with Jesus. I gave Jesus a high five. We fist bumped. No, 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 that's not true. And so it waits until almost all the apostles are martyred besides John. And when only John is alive, it begins to circulate. You know, you can almost imagine it as gossip. Like, mm-hmm. I, I heard that since Jesus is God, I heard he didn't even have a body. I, I heard that when Jesus walked around, he just had the appearance of a body. Mm-hmm. Well, I heard that, that Jesus was, was just kind of like a phantom. And it seems like there's no apostles left to defend it, right? Peter has been martyred. All these other guys, I mean, all the apostles have been martyred. Who's going to defend it? And John steps in with First John and says, actually, I heard him. I saw him. And I touched him. Came in like a wrecking ball. Came in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> John's and, not having it. That's right. And, and Gnosticism doesn't really take full root until about 200. You know? Mm-hmm. Until like 200, 250. Like at the time when John is written, it's referred to as proto-Gnosticism because it's just starting to get its bearings. But you can imagine how, I mean, you can imagine how people would, would begin to believe in Gnosticism, especially as Greek thinkers who think that uh, the world is dualistic. There's a spiritual world. There's a physical world. The spiritual world is good. The physical world is bad. How does Jesus fit into this? It's kind of like Talladega Nights. You watch Talladega Nights, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, that classic moment when Ricky Bobby is like, look, you know how I like my Jesus? I like my Jesus wearing a party a, a party tuxedo because it says, like, yeah, I'm Jesus, but I still like to party. And then he says, I like my Jesus to party because I like to party. <laughs> That's the root of all heresy. Uh-huh. We have something that we like, and so we project it on Jesus. Yep. We like the idea that the physical world is bad, so we project it on Jesus. That's the root of all heresy. Oh, man. I was going to – there was uh... – I had a thought, but I lost it. Maybe it'll come back to me later. Well, let's go to implications now, yeah. then. Um, I think as as postmodern Westerners, we can kind of look at Gnosticism and think, like, what's the big deal? Like, it's just a misunderstanding that Jesus was only a disembodied spirit who appeared to have a body. Seems like a harmless misunderstanding, but it's a big deal. So let's let's talk about some implications of believing in Gnosticism. What are some that you can think of? So, one... With the, with Gnosticism saying that the goal that, that salvation is brought about by you know this gnosis this this knowledge it it what what it means is that the human soul is going to return to the divine realm if they're chosen if they've you know learned enough if they've uh, gained enough knowledge of this unknowable thing their divine spark is is carried forth into the future um, so I think one of the implications of that is. It's just a. It will lead you to not value God's created world. That that's one thing, and not value hum, humanity. So, God has this spiritual family before the foundations of the earth. He then he creates humanity. He creates humanity. Why to have an earthly family? 
that mm-hmm. uh, he wanted earthly imagers. He creates this world. He doesn't just want to look at this world, but he wants this world to be represented w- with his image. So he creates the earth, and then he creates these little these little walking statues that go around and are his ambassadors of his rule and reign over the created world. Yeah, yeah. So you you start off with with uh, your foundation is already off because you you think that God just wants more more spirits hovering around. He wants more disembodied imagers. He he has a oh sure he has a spiritual he has spiritual imagers. He has his right. angels. Um, he has his messengers. He wanted physical physical embodied spirits to walk through the earth and to cover the the world with the knowledge of his glory just as the waters cover the seas like that was yeah, his purpose yeah. so if you if you take the gnostic perspective and worldview you've already you've already started off on a bad foot because you have just told told what you're doing is telling god uh you didn't know what you're doing so we've got to get back to this right place where it's just all spirits, all divine, spiritual, ethereal beings, um, not human beings. So I, I think that's one thing. You're 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 gonna the implications Dude. of that are gonna lead you, which probably we'll, t- we'll talk about. Um, it's gonna jack up your your theology of salvation. What's oh. the purpose of salvation? Dude, I mean, so like on that note, that's exactly what the Gnostics ended up doing. So if you look at the Gospel of Judas, which was written around. Um, 180 AD. It's one of the main, in the ancient world, it's one of the main literary tracks of Gnosticism. It was discovered in like 2006, and it was a big deal. Oh, really? Um, really quickly, it was it was clear that it wasn't attributed to Judas. Judas didn't write it. It came along in about 180 with a very clear agenda to promote Gnosticism. And like you said, if you believe that the spiritual world is good and the physical world is bad, you end up telling God that he doesn't know what he's doing. So the Gospel of Judas actually does that, but it takes it one step farther. What the Gospel of Judas is designed to do is to say, because there's so much suffering and harm and pain in the created world, which is bad and evil and yucky, they say, that can't be the true God who created this world. So this world that we live in and these bodies that we live in were actually created by a lesser God or a rival God who we need to reject Mm. in order to worship the true God who's above this rival God. So listen to this. They keep the scriptures, but they reread it. And so they read the God of the scriptures as the rival God, which means that they see that they see the wicked people and the wicked character in the scriptures as the people who are right. <laughs> Hence, the good, the good news of Judas. Mm-hmm. Judas is the good guy. Cain is actually the guy who got it right. And Abel is the bad guy. And so you end up like jacking up your view of who God oh, is because okay. the creator world yeah. is bad. No, I have heard this. I was like, this sounds familiar. I have heard this, especially in relation to Genesis 6. Oh, really? Yeah, of where the sons of God that come down, they're doing the right thing. Oh my gosh, that's crazy! So anyway, dude. so that's where I've heard the the Gospel of Judas what? hit on that. Yeah, yeah, because they, which if you take that perspective, you're you're a Baal worshiper in the Old Testament times. Like right, you're viewing your the the rival gods are the are the good gods. Right, Yahweh is not the not the good god. So that's just yeah, a long yeah. way of saying that if you embrace Gnosticism, you end up rejecting the God of the Bible. Yeah, which so, is not a good thing. Right. So not like like we said, not a not a harmless misunderstanding. No, definitely not. And I, I when you think about the the sanctity of life, um, for sure. Like so, if life is in humanity in the physical world, 
um, was created by God and God said it's good, it's whole, this is what I want it to be, and sin comes in there and taints that. Um, if you just reject the physical world, that, that, that will lead you to not care about human suffering. That will lead you to not care about murdering, take, murders taking place. That's right. Slavery. If, if all human bodies are bad, then if we take that to the extreme, um, then why should we care about, about righteousness? Why should we care about holiness? Why should we care, care about justice? Because if this is always going to go away at, at, at some point, um, then it doesn't really matter. Right. And I think right. that's a lot of the funny thing is that's what a lot of atheists think about Christians. Right. We're just that's waiting. That's what a lot of Christians think Christianity yeah, dude, is. Yeah. We're just waiting for, you know, we're waiting to go to heaven. We're waiting to enter right. into God's presence. And some people may think that you're just going to be a spirit the rest of your, the rest of eternity, just, you know, floating around with the fat little cherubim and you're singing songs that you've never sung before. <laughs> um, so it doesn't matter um, about what's taking place in the world that you're in right now. Cause it's all, it's all bad. Right. We're just waiting for the rapture to happen. Yeah. Um, so, like, to, to summarize your argument, one of the implications is if you buy into Gnosticism, you end up thinking that the Christian life is about getting into heaven when you die mm-hmm. rather than extending the rule and reign of God on earth as God's living, breathing statues. Yes, absolutely. And that, that will conf- – so if you believe there is this divide of the spiritual world and the physical world, um, and you, you don't see that those – were originally overlapped, right? There was this overlapping in in, in the, the two worlds, for lack of a better word. They overlapped. Um, but if you believe that they are definitely separating, then how do you, what, where do you put um, spiritual warfare in that category? What, what do you do with that? So if you view these things as totally separate, um, what do you do with the scriptures and you see these, these fallen angels, these rebellious angels? You have to think that they must have been the good ones then. You, right. you have to right. you have to think that well there's it's just not that important that's just uh, surely symbolic so I mean I, I, when I think about the there is this spiritual world there is this realm that you can't see um, and they are active they are bringing about oppression they're bringing about suffering I believe that that is true and that the purpose of God keeping the church here right now is we are what you just said, extending the rule and reign of Christ. We are, we are pointing to and showing that things, this world is, is bad right now, but we can, we have eternal life here and now as well. So we want others to come into that here. We want others to come into that eternal life. We want others to come into God's kingdom Mm -hmm. of, of light. Um, so we go out and we say, hey, one day this is all going to be changed. One day all of the wickedness and the, the bad and all the sin that's unraveling creation, that's all going to be undone. That's all going to be destroyed, and it's going to be yeah. taken back to, to God's original um, original plan where heaven and earth do overlap. Right Now they don't just overlap right. at one point, but they are totally the same. They are heaven and earth everywhere. That's right. Like, like N.T. Wright says, they're not water and oil that don't mix together. They're they're designed to be overlapping mm-hmm. in one location, yes. not two locations, but two realms in one location. Uh-huh. So I think that's really important when it comes to uh, yeah, thinking about spiritual warfare. When it comes to yeah, thinking about um, point showing God's goodness and making what is true in heaven, making that true on earth. That's what we pray as Christians when we pray the Lord's Prayer. God, make the reality in heaven the reality here on earth as well. That's right. And you are using us to accomplish that, that goal. Mm-hmm. And it seems like 
like you're saying, if 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 you're a functional Gnostic, you believe physical world is bad, spiritual world is good. Some of that's happening in this original audience. And one of the implications, like you said, is it, it begins to not matter what you do with your bodies. Mm-hmm. And that happens in the early church. That's one of the main reasons why John is so ticked off about Gnosticism is because people are sinning and they're sinning a lot and they don't care that they're doing it because they're saying, well, it's just going to go in the trash someday. My body's just going to go in the trash someday. It's going to get thrown in the fire forever. So it doesn't matter if I sleep around with other people in the church. Mm-hmm. And look at the way that this comes through in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. And look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What's he saying? He's saying it matters what we do with our body. Mm -hmm. It matters whether or not we sin. It matters because the body matters to God. The physical world matters to God. So this has huge implications. Yeah, and uh, the fellowship piece. Like if, If the spiritual world is good and the physical world is bad then we can't have fellowship with Jesus. We can't have fellowship with, with God because they're in the good part and we're in the bad part. So we have to hope that one day our spirit will be carried to, to the good part. So yeah. right yeah. now, the Christian has fellowship with Jesus, has fellowship with the Father, has fellowship with the Spirit because that's what Jesus came to do. He came right. to step in and to, to bring in the already but not yet. We already have fellowship. We don't totally have it yet, but one day we are. We, we don't. The world doesn't totally have fellowship with with um, with the, the triune God, but a new creation, the believing world will. Um, right. So that, to me, it, that ought to encourage me to pray more and to press into the Spirit more, because right here, right now, I have fellowship with Jesus. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's not something that I'm waiting to get, but I have fellowship with Jesus right now. And so, if I have fellowship with Jesus, that's going to have implications on how I live. That's going to affect what I do with my body. That's going to affect totally. how I see other people. Um, and I think far too often we don't think about that reality, that through the Holy Spirit we have fellowship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. We get the Spirit because Jesus has cleansed us and has made it a sacred space for God's Spirit to dwell in. Right. Um, little temples. Yeah, little, we're little temples. Little tabernacles. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, as we were, when you were preaching on Sunday and um, as I was thinking, collecting some dots for this podcast, that really was a solid reminder for me that I have fellowship with eternal life. Mm. I have fellowship with the person of Jesus mm-hmm. uh, because of his atonement. So that's, that's really, um, I, I can't fathom that. Right. right. Why, why am I? Cause I, this is where the Gnostic in me comes out. Like I'm so bad. Why do you want to love me? Why do you want to bring me into this fellowship in the light? Well, it's because God is bringing me back to my original purpose to have right. fellowship with him. Yeah, that's right. Now, here's an interesting point that one scholar brought up. One scholar I was reading talked about how Gnosticism didn't just give rise to licentiousness. It actually ended up giving rise to legalism, too, in other tribes. See that. So, again, like if you believe that the body is bad and the spirit is, gir- is, is good, then you end up saying, well, I can't experience any joy in the flesh at all because the flesh is bad. Mm-hmm. I can't. I shouldn't say flesh because the flesh is bad according to Paul, but Paul's not talking about skin and molecules. He's right. talking about sin nature. Right. So let me say it this way. I can't experience any pleasure because the body's bad. Mm-hmm. I can't experience any joy 
because my body is bad. I can't experience any joy in my intimacy in my marriage because the body's bad. I can't enjoy good food and good drink because the body's bad. So it ends up giving rise to legalism in a, in a, in a very real way that's really unhelpful for the Christian life. Yeah. And you see that? That definitely is... It's still around. Uh, yeah. I would say that's probably the church's most prevalent position, or at least, the, the well, yeah, I'll say that. Okay. It's yeah, not, I think so, too. It's not overt um, encouragement of licentiousness, but it's an overt um, pendulum swing to, we got to get up, we got to be buttoned down. We got to make sure everything is tight because, uh, yeah, if we experience any joy, um, then that, that's bad. Right. Right. If God is all about our pleasure. Right. right? He's all about it. Metaphor, uh, tr- transcendent joy, but also physical, literal, bodily joy. He's about that as well. That's right. He, he freaking designed your tongue with taste buds so that you would enjoy a Dairy Queen blizzard and praise him for it. Yeah. It wasn't just so you didn't eat bad things. Yeah. It wasn't so yeah. that it was like, oh, this is poison. I shouldn't eat this because this tastes really sour. It's, that is true as well. But it's, why did he put so many that we could taste salty things and sweet things and sour things and savory things? Like, why did he do that? Yeah. Yeah, dude. Okay, so you're actually already answering the last question I wanted to do in this podcast, which was, is Gnosticism still around today? And what both of us are saying is like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, not only is it still around, it may be even the main form that Christianity takes shape. And so one one author I read, I think this was Tabidi Anabwile, he he coined the phrase um, evangelical Gnosticism, which I thought thought was great because I think it's really true. Yeah. Evangelicalism, um, in a lot of ways, thinks that materiality and physicality is bad and the spirit is good. And I think there's a lot of bad consequences to that. Mm-hmm. Like one consequence I think there is, is you stop listening to your body as a legitimate means through which God speaks to you. Mm-hmm. So you become unable to, you become unable to assess yourself by thinking, oh man, um, my shoulders are really tight right now maybe God is communicating to me that I'm not trusting in him, hmm. which is really, really important, man. Like, oh, I'm really, really tired right now. Maybe God is communicating to me that I haven't been practicing the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So I think you lose a lot of things when you just think that that Christianity is only a spiritual experience and not a physical experience. Yeah, that's that's really good. I've not made that connection in my yeah. mind before. Yeah, that's how Anna that. Wheelay defines yeah. it. Evangelical Gnosticism is a belief that Christianity is only spiritual and not physical. Yeah. That's good. I'm going to chew on that one for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, I, I, I for sure think it's around. And I think that we demean the atonement of Jesus when we believe that, right? When we, If we believe these things, if he just came to eradicate the physical world, then why did he give himself up for the physical world? But then yeah, also, but yeah. then then also, like if you take the perspective of um, that Jesus was not that he was a man who a spirit came upon him, um, or he was had the appearance of a man, and uh, the spirit departed from him on, on his crucifixion, then the atonement actually didn't work and couldn't work. Right. So if you've got if you're doing Old Testament animal sacrifice. And you are having to separate, okay, I need a blemish-free goat or a blemish-free uh, sheep to make the sacrifice count because it needs perfect blood. It needs a, a perfect um, a perfect creature to be sacrificed. So I'm not going to pick up the one with the gimpy leg. I'm not going to pick the one that's got a bunch of spots on it. I need a spot-free, blemish-free lamb that I can offer <laughs> up to, to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Jesus had to become truly man, right? He had to become truly man so that he could be a true sacrifice to pay that price um, once and for all for the salvation of those who would believe in him. He had to be that. So if he only had it for a, for a little bit, it'd be like, yeah, it would be like you, get, you gave this lamb a, a pretty good bath and you uh, took some white out and you covered up the dark spots on it. And then it was good for the sacrifice. But then after you kill it, you're like, oh, that thing actually wasn't perfect. Somebody, somebody pulled a trick on me here. Um, a funny story is my great grandpa bought um, a horse from somebody. This is a, or a mule from somebody up in the hills of East Tennessee. And he thought he was buying this real young, good looking mule that was going to get some work done from him. Oh, here we go. So he gets it, you know, he's had it for a little bit. And then he realizes that the person who sold this to him just put, I think they put shoe polish on this, on this thing. No freaking yeah. way. <laughs> so it was an old, old lame mule. Oh my god! Yeah, so he got dude. swindled. So it looked good whenever he bought it. But then when he starts working with it, oh, this thing is, it's not moving. It's not kicking out the mule power that I was expecting whenever Whoa. I bought this thing. So that's like what I think of. If you think of Jesus only having the spirit, he was just a man who got a spirit for three, three years. What good is that? Yeah. And so if, if, I, if I believe that, um, then that's going to cause me just to do some good works just so I look good for a period of time. I'm not trusting in Jesus. We needed a fully man. We needed mm-hmm. someone who was fully human to offer up themselves as a sacrifice. And the way that God went about that was not to tell man to purify yourself so much that you can be a sacrifice it took God to come down and to live the perfect human life. So he was fully God, fully man, um, perfectly God, perfectly man, encapsulated in, in the flesh, and he offers himself a, as a sacrifice. And so that helps me to become a living sacrifice now. I'm not called to spill my own yeah, blood, right. but I'm enabled to be a living sacrifice. So my righteousness, um, my holiness, my... Uh, going out and evangelizing, my singing songs and encouraging church members and taking care of church members and being a good dad and being a good husband, that's me being a living sacrifice. Because mm-hmm. I don't have to die. I have to die to my flesh. But Jesus has already, I've, I've been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer just me that lives, but it's Christ living in me. Um, so I think that's a really, really important. Like getting the yeah. fully God, fully man at the same time is so important when it comes to a theology of the atonement. Yeah, absolutely. And atonement in the Old Testament, like you're saying, was a matter of matter. Mm-hmm. It was a matter of molecules. Yeah. It was a very physical experience. A priest laid his hands on the goat for propitiation and expiation to send them out into the wilderness. So it was in their understanding that that's where the sins of the people went. Mm-hmm. So if Jesus only was spirit and had no body, the big question is, where did your sins go? nowhere Mm -hmm. and on top of that as far as jesus being our representative death in our place he can only represent us like hebrew says if he's like us Mm -hmm. so so if god is only spirit and if god is only spirit he can't represent us on the cross so like you're saying he needed to take on flesh so that he could be made like us so that he could represent us in our death and die for us yes so like dude it's a very you got to get this it's still, like you're saying, like we keep on saying, like Gnosticism is still around. Here's a great example of one way I know that Gnosticism is still around. This is a quote from obviously my favorite book besides the Bible, which is Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Here we go. As always, 
I will buy you a copy if you read it. Anybody who's listening, reach out to me at coldikey at gmail.com. Here's what, sorry. <laughs> Here's what Jaber says in the book. He says, I hated studying those preachers. So he's criticizing the preachers that he's listening to. He says, with them, it seemed like everything bad was laid on the body and everything good was credited to the soul. And it scared me a little when I realized that I saw it the other way around. If the soul and body really were divided, then it seemed to me that all the worst sins, hatred, anger, and self-righteousness and greed and lust came from the soul. But these preachers I'm talking about all thought that the soul could do no wrong, but always had its face washed and its pants on and was in agony over having to associate with the flesh in the world. Here's what's interesting. Jaber Crow thinks that he's criticizing Christianity. He's not. <laughs> he's criticizing Gnosticism. Uh-huh. Oh, that's funny. I just thought that. I, I, obviously, I had to say that. You had to sneak some Wendell Berry in. <laughs> yeah. No, dude. Like, and uh, like in the Apostles' Creed, where it says he descended to hell or descended to, to the dead, they're, they're combating um, a heresy. It wasn't full-on Gnosticism, but it was, I think it's called Apollinarianism. Um, but where Jesus was, he was, um, had a divine spirit, but he was, the divine spirit was fully in a human, human body. And so they put that in there to say, no, Jesus had a fully, and this is where it's like so complicated for my feeble little mind to comprehend, but he was fully God and fully man. In order for him to be fully man, he also had to have a fully human spirit. He had to have both of those things. Um, it's so Jesus in the incarnation fully enters into the human experience, which is fully physical and fully spiritual. And so his descent into the dead, his descent into the place of into the realm of the dead is him going down and preaching the gospel to the old Testament believers, but also preaching the gospel to those whom had rebelled against God who wanted to mm-hmm. eradicate humanity. Um, and so they get down there and they think, Oh, our side is one. Jesus is down here. The unique Son of God oh. is down here. He's just a spirit. We won. Woo. We've gotten rid of these of human imagers, and so Jesus, in his preaching of the gospel, he's preaching freedom for those who are um, in Christ. But he's also preaching damnation for the the to the to the fallen spiritual beings. And so the salt and the wound is him coming back out of the place of the dead and oh. being united with a glorified body. Right. So. It has implications there as well. If we are only disembodied souls who go to heaven forever, but our bodies and Jesus' body remains in the grave, that is an indicator that God has lost and death has won. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. Satan, the devil, he is the Lord of the dead, right? Right. He, by br- him bringing death into the world, he becomes the master of death. Like all, all the dead belong to him and it. In one way for the believers, but in another way for the unbelievers. Um, but Jesus and his descent, his, uh, his perfect life, his atoning death, his descent into the, the place of the dead, he snatches the keys of death from the Lord of death. Dude. And he ascends Dude. with the keys. That gets me, it gets me going, man. So, so it's, it's important. Yeah, that's sick, bro. It's so important that, that we get our heads properly yeah. around the humanity and divinity of Christ, but also the humanity of human beings who have been given spirits and have been given souls from, from God. And that's his plan for humanity. Dude. 
That's legit. Okay, dude, I can't believe this, but we've been going for over an hour now. We're at an hour and eight minutes. Let's wrap this thing up. Um, I've really enjoyed talking about John, the way John's experience shaped first John, some of the things that he's doing that we might not see because it's not explicitly in the text, but it's in the context. It's been great. I've loved this conversation. Do you have a single encouragement that you'd like to leave our church with? Hmm. I, I think so as a result of just talking about Gnosticism and, and seeing John's purpose in, in writing to the church, um, you know, the first, the first reason he says I'm writing to you is that, you're, that your joy may be complete. Yeah. Um, and we are all about our joy in, in Christ at Frontier Church. We explicitly use that language. Um, mm-hmm. But it's easy to get on cruise control and to, to lose sight of the fact that Jesus came so that our joy may be com- completed. Yeah. Um, or to be may may be complete. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just say, think about the beauty of God creating human beings. That you were created by God to be His imager. And so when you properly understand that and live your life in the light of His kingdom, there's so much joy to be found in that. You're not going to live the life that God has intended you to live if you don't find joy in Him. Dude, you've got to find your joy in Him. Yeah. So it's you know this circular thing where we find our joy in, in him because we do good works and we, we find our joy in him, therefore we do good works and glorify our father. Right. We find joy in our father and that also compels us to do good works. Yeah. We live the proper life. We live the post fall life that God intended us to live. So I would just say press into that and think about that. That's gonna be a recurring theme that we have. That's good, man. That's good. I guess I would say worshiping God with your body is a deeply spiritual experience, mm-hmm. and God designed it to be that way. Yes. Don't be ashamed of that. It is a very real spiritual experience when you take communion. Mm-hmm. When you look at the grape juice and you look at the cracker and you hold them and you swallow them and experience them in your stomach, that's designed to be a deeply spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. When and if you lift and raise your hands and worship, that's a deeply spiritual experience. So I would say find ways to worship God with your body because although your body and soul are both fallen, God is also restoring them to their original glory. Mm-hmm. So do not hesitate to pray on your knees at home. Do not hesitate to lift your hands and worship. Do not hesitate to use your body as though it were spiritual because it is. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd say. That's good, man. And also just believe in John. He saw him heard him and touched him. So John wins. Whatever we think about Jesus doesn't really matter if it's opposed to what John says. So So guys, we're hoping that this podcast really helps you get into first John, shows you the depth and breadth and width of the letter. And most of all, we hope that this podcast, whether or not you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, helps you worship local. 